Well, good morning. Well, thank you. Let me also add to you my welcome on this Student Ministry Sunday. Uh, my name is Cameron Contrastano, and I have the pleasure of serving here as a director of Student Ministries. Uh, and speaking of students, uh, to you guys this morning, I want to say I love you guys. Um, I, it is such a pleasure to serve alongside you this morning. Thank you for your service. Thank you for helping us out. And to our parents, um, it has been a privilege to watch your students grow in maturity and in their love for Jesus. Thank you for training them up, for discipling them, and teaching them to love Jesus. Uh, and lastly, I want to thank another special group. Uh, to our student ministry volunteers, we could not do what we do here without you. It is a privilege to serve alongside such wonderful and committed volunteer leaders. I want to begin this morning with a story. When I was a little kid growing up in Rancho Cucamonga, California, my uh, parents and my, I know it's a funny name, my parents and my grandmother would take me to local minor league baseball games, the Cucamonga Quakes as they were called, and I loved going to these games. I loved everything about it. I loved the sights, the smells, the tastes, and of course I enjoyed watching the game itself. Uh, but I also couldn't wait to get home from the game because I always wanted to copy what I saw on the field at home in our backyard. To this day, uh, my grandmother, who uh, is getting up there in age, she's 99. She tells a story of the time when we played baseball in the backyard. So I, I picked up the bat and, and stood by home plate, which was a rock. And, and my grandmother stood by another rock, which was the pitcher's mound. And as she prepared to throw the first pitch, I held up my hand and dropped the bat, and I disappeared inside. And my grandmother was left in the yard wondering what had happened. And when I reemerged from the house, it was apparent. I had just gone in and put on my Little League pants and my Little League hat, and now I was ready to play. I came and, and took the batter's box again, now properly attired, and I had prepared for that first pitch. And my grandmother wound up and threw a wicked underhand fastball, and I wound up and prepared to hit that pitch, and I swung with all of my might, launching the ball a whole three feet in front of me. Not much of a hit, but I took off running towards the rock by the fence, which was first base. And as I approached the rock, I slowed my pace, and then I stopped and laid down on my stomach. And then I got up and I ran to the tree in the middle of the yard and stopped and laid down on my stomach. And then I did the same at third base and at home plate. And as I got up and was dusting myself off, my grandmother, who was now laughing herself to death, came up to me and with a puzzled look on her face, asked me, why in the world were you doing that? What were you doing laying down on all of the bases? And what was very apparent to me was obviously not apparent to her. And I explained to her, Grandma, I'm sliding like one of the Cucamonga Quakes. Like many kids, I loved to play the part. I loved to dress up. I loved to wear the gear that made me look and feel like a Cucamonga Quake like a Marine, like Luke Skywalker, whatever it is. I wanted to look these parts, and I even acted them out. But here's the thing, and it was apparent to everybody except me. Uh, I was not a professional minor league baseball player. I was not a soldier, and I certainly wasn't a Jedi. As we turn to our passage this morning in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 through 54, we're going to encounter some grown men who also liked to play dress-up. They loved to look the part of holy men. They loved the respect, the admiration, and the authority that came with it. They were respected and admired as one of the most influential groups in the entire nation when people passed by them in the market. You could hear the whispers. 
When people passed by them in the temple, you could hear the whispers. And today, those whispers might sound something like, there goes Chuck Swindoll. What a model leader. Or there goes Max Lucado. What a tremendously talented teacher of the word. Only unlike Chuck and Max, these men, who you might recognize, the Pharisees and the scribes, had no substance Our passage this morning begins with an invitation to a meal. And in verse 37, it says, While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. Now, by now, in our study in the book of Luke, the Pharisees are familiar characters. They're recurring characters at this point. We've seen them before. They were members of a religious political sect who paid careful attention to their living to make sure that it reflected holiness and that they were set apart. In fact, the name Pharisee means the separated ones or the set apart ones. Though by now, we are also well aware of the intentions of the Pharisees because behind this kind gesture is surely an attempt to out Jesus publicly as a fraud. In other words, it's a trap. And undoubtedly, it's a trap that Jesus knew that they were setting for him, but he accepts the invitation anyway. And verse 37 continues saying, so he, Jesus, went in and reclined at table. And so choice ingredients are prepared, an elaborate table is set, and the food is about to be served, though not before the customary ritual hand-washing, which Jesus refuses. Now, it's important we need to understand a couple of things about that customary ritual hand-washing. Firstly, this is not talking about a sanitary hand-washing. No germ theory in the first century. They were not talking about having Jesus wash and clean dirt off of his germs and hands. And secondly, this hand-washing is not required by the law. However, it is still extremely important to the Pharisees. And when Jesus doesn't participate, they take notice. Verse 38 says, The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, the Pharisees believed that the hands were especially in danger of becoming ceremonially unclean. So, In order to avoid this, the Pharisees, who above all cared about preserving the outward appearance of holiness, partook in this elaborate hand-washing ceremony or, or ritual, the thoroughness of which would put a surgeon to shame. And you can imagine the scene. The Pharisees' hands are now dripping with water, and they look over and see Jesus' hands remain dry. And they look at each other and think to themselves, we've got him. And so they spring the trap that they've set for Jesus, and you can almost hear one of them loudly saying so that everybody else in the house can hear, uh, teacher, we noticed that you didn't wash your hands. Were you, were you also going to wash your hands like we have? But Jesus doesn't let them continue, and without skipping a beat, he says back, now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. And just like that, Jesus turns the table on the Pharisees. If they haven't figured it out already, they are about to learn really well that they are no match for Jesus. Because you see, he uses their own trap to illustrate their hypocrisy. The Pharisees, they had found ingenious ways of lining their pockets with ill-gotten wealth. They had set up a system that allowed them to take advantage of the poor and the foreigner visiting Jerusalem, and they got rich off of those schemes. 
And these same schemes are the reason why Jesus later comes into the table flipping temples and uh, flipping tables and driving out the money changers with a whip. Jesus sees right through the Pharisees' hypocrisy, and he hates this kind of self-righteousness mixed with greed. They obsessively wash their hands to maintain the outward appearance of holiness. And yet they use those hands to count the money that they have stolen from those that are less fortunate. And Jesus is saying to them, God sees through you, and he knows your heart. You can't hide your wickedness behind outward deeds. You can't hide your wicked heart from God. And we, as we read this passage, sit back and we say, of course, you silly Pharisees. How could you think that you could get away with something God sees through you? You know, my friends, I wonder how many of us do the same. Are there ways in which we use our hands and our lips to appear holy and yet also use them to dishonor God and to mistreat those made in his image? In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus summarized the entire Old Testament saying that the greatest commandment is to love God with your entire being and a love for God which works its way out in love for others. And my first question for us this morning is, is this true of us? Do our lives reveal a deep love for God and for others? Or are we like the Pharisees who neglect justice and the love of God? While I was studying architecture at UTSA, uh, my best friend Tommy and I would spend as much time as we possibly could exploring the downtown San Antonio area. And Tommy was, like I said, one of my best friends. I loved him, and he was one of my closest friends throughout college. Uh, As a matter of fact, we had a couple of things in common. We were both raised in the church. We were reared by believing parents, and we both attended separate private Christian schools. And yet, when I met Tommy in college, he was making no effort to follow Jesus. He was in rebellion against God, and yet... He was also deeply kind and deeply caring. Once while we were grabbing a bite to eat uh, at a restaurant downtown, a man who had come in off the street uh, approached us asking us for money. And as I was getting my food from the counter, I turned around and saw Tommy speaking to this man, and without skipping a beat, he reached into his back pocket, pulled out his wallet, pulled out money, and handed it to the man. He said, here, I hope, I hope this helps. And as I got my food and I turned and and I saw Tommy doing this, I I begrudgingly did the same, reached into my back pocket, pulled out some money and gave it to the man. And as we were walking out of the restaurant, I said under my breath to Tommy, what are the odds that he actually uses that money to buy a sandwich and not alcohol? And Tommy, who knew that I claimed to be a, a follower of Jesus, said to me, I don't know, man. And then he stopped outside to light a cigarette and he kicked at the ground for a minute and then he turned and he looked at me with a look of disappointment that I will never forget. And he said, but I never heard Jesus ask that kind of question before healing the sick or giving sight to the blind. Now some of you might be hung up thinking, I can't believe that Tommy was smoking or of course that guy was definitely going to waste their money. You may have even noticed that Tommy's comparison doesn't make perfect theological sense, and you'd be right. And yet, 
Please don't miss this. Though Tommy's rebuke was flawed with just a few words, he showed me that my heart was in the wrong place. As a follower of Jesus, my actions and my heart should reflect that of my Savior. And as Tommy pointed out, the Gospels show us a Jesus whose heart breaks for the broken, for the hurting, for the vulnerable including the self-righteous and the hypocrite. And yet Jesus is also deeply disappointed when we, like the Pharisees, focus all of our attention on outward acts than on the heart of God's law, which is to love others. The Pharisees had misplaced their priorities and Jesus sees right through it. In verse 44, Jesus' last judgment against the Pharisees says, Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, to the ancient Israelites, graves were considered ceremonially unclean as the repositories for for dead things. And if you were to accidentally walk over an unmarked grave without knowing it, you yourself would become defiled, and everywhere that you went and touched, including possibly the temple or your home, would also become defiled. And so graves should be clearly marked. And Jesus is saying that the Pharisees who loved when people tried to follow after them were actually leading people to their own destruction. Instead of showing people the way to life, they were leading people into spiritual death. They were like uh, the Instagram stars of our day who, who flex their status in front of their followers, just daring them to follow after them. Copy me. Follow me. And just like our fitness, fashion, and financial social media icons, the Pharisees led people into a lifestyle that was not only totally unattainable, but also entirely destructive. Like many people wrecked their lives trying to copy singers and sports stars, many people wrecked their spiritual lives trying to copy after the Pharisees. As those who were privileged to know God's law both inside and out, they should have led people to life. And yet, people who followed in their ways were blindly led into wickedness and self-righteousness and hypocrisy. And suddenly, the scene changes. Because as Jesus is laying into this Pharisee, a man representing another group in attendance, the scribes or lawyer stands up and says these words. Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, don't, don't you realize that the words you're saying hurt our feelings too? And I'm like, aw. But not because Jesus has hurt his feelings, but because he should have kept his mouth shut after hearing what Jesus has just said to the Pharisees. Now, if the Pharisees were experts in keeping and enforcing the law, the scribes or lawyers were experts in interpreting and applying the law. And Jesus has issues with them as well, but not the same that he had with the scribes and the Pharisees. Because Jesus has just just charged the Pharisees with being greedy hypocrites. He's about to turn to the scribes and charge them with woefully mishandling God's word and God's law. He answers saying, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with even one of your fingers. God's law was never intended to be a burden. It was a gracious gift to his people in a time when other human political structures allowed people in power to take advantage of their people. When when God gave the law, he was saying, if you trust me, if you believe that how I say life should be lived and you follow the law that I am giving you, then not only will you flourish, but you will be a beacon of hope to every nation on earth. 
The prophet Micah summarized the law saying, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. The scribes, however, took a different approach. Wishing arrogantly to give themselves a leg up over everybody else in society, they added to God's law hundreds and hundreds of codes and traditions that nobody but them could keep track of. Instead of helping people to keep the law, they looked down their noses in disgust at people who struggled to follow their many codes and traditions. When Jesus later says to the masses, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he was speaking directly to people who had been abused by the heavy burdens laid on them by these scribes. In verses 47 through 51, Jesus also condemns them for building great tombs or mausoleums to the prophets of old. And these, these great building structures, many of them which can still be seen in Israel today, the scribes were intending to illustrate their commitment to the words of the prophets. In other words, they were saying, if the prophets were alive here today, we would have listened to them. We would not have killed them. We revere them. Therefore, we build their tombs. They were trying to distance themselves from their ancestors and their fathers who in the past had, had heard the words of the prophets, didn't like it, and then killed them for it. But Jesus sees through these building projects for what they really are, walls to conceal their pride. And Jesus sees right through those walls and into their proud hearts. And in verse 48, see, Jesus says, you're actually no different from your fathers who killed the prophets. You would have done exactly the same thing. If the prophets were here today, you would have killed them as well. And the question now, which is legitimate, is how in the world does Jesus know that? The prophets were men sent by God to speak on God's behalf. Jesus claims that everything written in the law and the prophets was actually written about him, and that makes these scribes members of the most fortunate generation in history. They have all of the wisdom and all of God's word, which points to the Messiah, the Son of God, at their fingertips, and they know it like the back of their hands. And now God's Messiah, Jesus, is reclining in their midst. He is right there, and they are about to reject him in a few short chapters they will kill him. And in doing so, they prove they are no different from their fathers because they have just committed to killing God's greatest prophet. Finally, Jesus says, Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Like the Pharisees, the scribes were also guilty of keeping people from coming to God. Their many codes and traditions made it impossible to discern God's plan of salvation. And these men despised the very people that Jesus came to save. They chased away the broken and the hurting from God's temple. And made it impossible for sinners to encounter the grace and mercy of God. And my friends, once again, I'm afraid that very often we do the same thing. And you may look at me and you may think and you may say, not me, I have never kept anybody from coming to Wayside Chapel. I have never stiff-armed anybody from coming into church, into God's temple. And yet, my friends, where today does God's presence reside? Where is God's temple? We, the church, you, me, we are the temple of God. And we, we may not shut people out of the four walls of this building 
but do we shut people out of our lives? Are there people that you refuse to spend time with? Are there people that you refuse to invite into your home? Are there businesses or, part of t- or parts of town that you refuse to visit? Are there people that you refuse to sit by at the lunch table? And why? Is it because you don't like the way they parent their kids? Is it because you disagree with their lifestyle or their politics? Is it because they've hurt you in the past or they've spread horrible rumors about you on, on social media or, or through text messaging? Is it, because, is it because they act like sinners? My friends, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't believe in Jesus act like they don't believe in Jesus. And yet, in order for you and I, people who claim to follow Jesus, in order for us to act like Jesus, we must extend grace and forgiveness to those very same people. Jesus was called a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Those who called them that meant it as an insult. He wore it as a badge of honor. Would people in our homes... Would people in our schools, would people in our places of business or work, would they say the same about us? That we're a friend to the broken. And our passage concludes saying, as he went from there, the scribes and Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Did you, did you catch the irony that Luke has woven into the final words of this passage? The scribes and Pharisees who have just heard Jesus plea, they've just heard his strong words to them saying, you guys have gotten it wrong. They completely ignore Jesus and now they go away planning to once again to try to catch Jesus in a trap. It didn't work before. Why would it work again? And yet they go away planning to try once again to trap Jesus. And yet, as this passage has shown, it's not Jesus who's caught in a trap. It's the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're caught in a trap of their own making. Before we close, I'd like to tell you uh, one more story. Uh, A couple of weeks before Christmas, and about a month after we had my son Noah, Uh, my wife and I adopted a kitten. I know that's crazy. It was my idea. And we named her Sybil after a character on Downton Abbey. Don't laugh. It's a great show. We named this cat Sybil, and we brought her home into our house, and we wanted to right off the bat teach her to use the litter box outside. Any of you cat owners know what I'm talking about. My wife and I have done the, the living in an apartment, keeping a former cat inside with a litter box inside, and that doesn't go very well, as you might know. So we wanted to teach her the right way. You're going to have a litter box outside in the garage. So that first night, we got a litter box and put it in the garage, and some food and a warm bed, and we closed the door to the garage, and then we went to sleep. And then I got up early in the morning because uh, when Noah was first born, I would take the first feeding because mom had been up all night with him. So I can, I can do the first bottle in the morning before I go to work. So I go to the refrigerator and, and the refrigerator is right next to the garage door. Open the garage door so that the cat can come inside and be with us. Take a bottle and I go and sit down and feed my son Noah. And I don't hear the cat, you know, around the house, but I assume she's just kind of, you know, snuck in somewhere in the house. And after I'm done feeding Noah, I go put him down, and then I go and search for the cat, because, you know, it's her first night here, I want to see how she's doing, and I can't find her anywhere. 
And after looking for 15 minutes, I go and wake Becca up and say, babe, I can't, I can't find Sybil. We can't have lost her on this first night. Will you please come and help me look? And she gets up and we, and we go and look around the house. We look under furniture, in all of the bedrooms, in the garage, under the car, and we can't find the cat Sybil anywhere. She's nowhere to be found. And so Becca goes back to take care of Noah and I, and I go out into the garage and I think to myself, maybe if I, maybe if I start the engine of my car, it'll scare her out of wherever she's hiding. And so I go and I sit down in the car and I, I start the engine and as it roars to life, I look around trying to catch a cat that might be scampering out of, out of, a, out of a hiding place and I see nothing. And so I, I walk back inside the house, but before I even cross the threshold, a chill goes up my spine as I remember that somewhere somebody had told me that sometimes in the winter cats will crawl into the engine of a car looking for warmth. And like you were freaking out right now, I freaked out and I ran to the hood of the car and I threw open the hood expecting the worst and looked in it and there was nothing. Thank goodness there was nothing, but I'm still frustrated and I can't find the cat. So not in the engine, I sit down next to the car thinking, where is this cat? And it brings me, sitting down brings me about eye level with with the wheel of my car. And I'm kind of looking around thinking, where could she be? I see through the wheels through the wheel well into like the bottom of the engine of the car, a little tiny gray tuft of fur. And I think that's got to be the cat. That's got to be Sybil. And so I call Becca and I say, Becca, I found her. And so we, we jack the car up. This is early in the morning, by the way, before we've got to go to work. I jack the car up, pull the wheel off of the car, and I start reaching my arm as deep into the engine as I can get it. And I'm reaching for what I think is surely a dead cat. I mean, I turn the engine on and I'm reaching as hard as I can and I touch her and she meows. And now I'm excited because the cat's alive and that, you know, galvanizes me on and I try even harder to reach and my hand is being, being crushed and bent and bruised and bloodied by all kinds of metal and rubber inside the car and I'm reaching as hard as I can and I get like my longest finger, my middle finger just to try to coax her towards me and the cat whose, hat, whose head I'm now touching thinks I'm petting her and she starts to purr and now I'm mad. I went from being excited that she was alive to very frustrated and I'm like, you crazy cat. I'm trying to save your life, pulling you out of this car, and you think that I'm petting you, and you're purring at me about it. I don't appreciate this. So I reach even harder into the engine of the car, and I finally get her by her ear. And I start to yank the cat out of the car by her ear, and just as you're thinking right now, that, you know, doesn't sound very comfortable. So she, she, she escapes and recedes further into the car, and I pull my arm out, and am frustrated as can be, and I can't, like, how are we going to get this cat out? And thank goodness for my wife, and very smartly goes over, gets some of the cat's food, pours it into a bowl, shakes it for two seconds, and out comes the cat. <laughs> and so now you have a, a living cat who's still alive today, by the way. Um, a living cat, a very bloodied and frustrated Cameron, and you're wondering, why do I tell you this? Um, my friends, I'm afraid that many of us come to God's word expecting to be scratched behind the ear. We come to the Bible looking for an uplifting message and we, we Google encouraging verses and when we find something that's encouraging to us, we purr with excitement and feel really good about it. And yet, and though to be sure, the Bible is full of really, really good news. Its primary purpose, however, is not to deliver encouragement. God has given us his word primarily to reveal to us the truth. And the truth is that you and I are in big trouble. We are like a cat trapped beneath the engine of a car. And the Holy Spirit is tugging at our ear trying to pull us away from our own destruction. He's not trying to pet us. He's not trying to make us comfortable. He's trying to save our lives. And we can't 
afford to ignore him. We are twisted and broken by sin, and we really, really don't want to admit it. We desperately want to look like we have our lives together. We shudder to think what people would say if they knew what was going on inside of our hearts and inside of our minds. We don't want to believe that the death that Jesus died on the cross is the death that we deserved. And so therefore, we desperately want to contribute something to our salvation so that we can feel good about ourselves. And so we, like the scribes and Pharisees, we play dress up hiding behind our good deeds and our good works. And yet, my friends, Jesus sees through our hypocrisy. He sees through our misplaced priorities. And he sees through the walls into our proud hearts. And yet, he loves us anyway. This is the gospel, and it's for believers and non-believers alike. If you are here this morning and have never trusted Jesus before because you believe that somehow you had to clean yourself up before you could come to him. I need to tell you this morning that according to the Bible, you have believed a lie. The book of Romans says, while we were still sinners, while we were at our worst, while we were in rebellion against God, while we were like open graves with dead hearts, Christ died for us. Nothing that you can do can add to or take away from what Jesus has done for us on the cross. And if you believe, you will be saved. And if you're here and you have already believed in Jesus, then you need to remember that there is nothing that you can do to add or take away from what Jesus has done for you on the cross. You see, Jesus came to deal with the righteous requirements of the law and to give us rest. We need not prove that we are more holy and deserving of God's love than the person to our left or to our right. We don't need to earn God's affection for us. We can rest knowing that the work is done for those of us who have believed in Jesus. Our debt to sin is paid in full and we are free to serve God without fear and full of love for him and for others. If you have never believed in Jesus, then I hope you will believe the gospel this morning. And if you have believed in Jesus, then I hope that you will remember the gospel this morning and can't afford to forget it. Let me pray for us. Our Father in heaven, thank you God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us. God, thank you that even though our hearts are twisted and broken by sin, that you sent your son Jesus to die a substitutionary death on our behalf. God, thank you that we don't need to clean ourselves up to come to you. And thank you that once we know you there's nothing we have to do to continue to earn your affection because you love us so deeply God thank you also this morning God for our students for Wayside that they um, invest so much into students and into their leaders and God we thank you that you are a good God that you love us 
We ask this morning that you would reveal yourself to us, that you would show us how much you love us. If there's anyone here that has not believed the gospel because they, like the Pharisees, thought they had to clean themselves up, I pray that they would believe it knowing that you accept us as we are. And if there are some like me who so often forget that you have paid for my sin in full, and so I, I try so hard to make myself look like I know what I'm doing, God, would you just allow me to be broken and to know that you love me? We thank you, God. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.